So that was Bach's Cantata 156, written in 1729 for the third Sunday in Epiphany. Beautifully played by Kara and Mary Poling. Uh, in learning about the piece, one writer describes Cantata 156 as being one which begins with anticipation of death. Cantata 156 serves as a prayer of one near death for release from the sickbed of punishment for sin than for God's aid with the sickness of the soul. The cantata begins in F major and ultimately moves to C major after first moving downward from F to D minor to B flat major. Clearly, clearly, the descent represents the sickness moving towards death as man surrenders himself over to God's grace. And that's it. That's it right there, church. That's the word that encompasses so much of these five solas that we've been looking at. The word, surrender. To surrender our will, our plan, our goals, our dominion, our kingdom over to the lives of God. That's Christianity at its most fundamental. Throughout this series, A House Built on Rock, we've, we've been learning about the foundations of our faith through the lens of the five solas of Reformation theology. In sola scriptura, we surrender our story to the grand narrative of Scripture. In sola gratia, we surrender our ability to merit our own salvation to God's free gift of grace. In sola fide, we surrender our way of life and trust our path and our choices to God. And in solus Christus, we surrender our idols. Anything that claims lordship over our lives other than God and proclaim clearly that Jesus is Lord. Now, we come finally to this phrase, soli Deo Gloria. Did you know that, that Johann Sebastian Bach wrote the letters SDG, Soli Deo Gloria, at the end of all of his sacred pieces and a few of his secular pieces as well. He, he wanted the world to know that his work, that his life's work that would be played by, by students, by played by musicians for centuries to come, he wanted it to know, he wanted them to know that his work, his composition, his life was to God's glory alone. If you watch professional sports, you'll notice that players, they often, you know, they kick the field goal and they, and they point up to give God glory. Matt, Matt Stover did this all the time. And what's especially cool about Stover um, and, and many others is that they point at the sky. Matt Stover pointed at the sky even when he missed, which for Stover wasn't often. But it's as if he was saying, nobody's perfect. You can't make them all, but you can do it all to his glory. One of my favorite movies of all time is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indy's on a quest in this movie to find his father, and to do so, he needs to race the Nazis to find the Holy Grail. And at one point early on in the film, he's chased by some guys from the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword, whose responsibility it is to protect the Grail. 
And after a tragic case of miscommunication, because they just turned out to be more good guys, one of them says to Indiana Jones, ask yourself, why do you seek the cup of Christ? Is it for his glory or for yours? So, maybe your thing is writing 18th century Baroque cantatas, or maybe it's full contact adventure archaeology, or, or maybe it's helping struggling football teams uh, with struggling offenses win Super Bowl championships. Regardless, the choice before us is whether or not we are giving God the glory. One writer defines a life centered on soli deo gloria as one that is an existence that savors of God. What if you put that phrase like on your door as you exited, like right above the door frame of your house, like soli deo gloria, that everything we do, or maybe also on um, the, the outside of the door so you see it when you come in. So there's just the idea that everything I do as I leave this house and everything that I do in this house is done to God's glory. The Bible is full of characters, though, who allow their pride uh, to prevent them from doing that. Um, allow their pride to kind of get the better of them. Um, through the, the prophet Ezekiel, we see God judge Pharaoh of Egypt, who, who pridefully declares, if you imagine a, the Pharaoh of Egypt um, declaring, the Nile is my own. I made it. Or consider the story that we see in the book of Daniel from King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, turn there with me, if you would. Turn me, uh, with me to, uh, to Daniel 4. I tell you, last week we were in Revelation. This week we are in Daniel. We're cooking. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 28. Daniel 4, starting in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He could have seen the, maybe the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which are, turned out to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, he, he, he just can bask over his kingdom. And the king answered and said, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as the royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So dripping with pride, dripping with, with, with the, the, his glory, his dominion. While the words, but then, then, then Daniel says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The king has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, uh, like the, the, the seven times, the perfect amount of time, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Like a David Bowie type character. Anyway, at the end of the days, and here we get, we hit 
Nebuchadnezzar's own words here. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I love that. My, my, my reason returned to me. I, I came to my senses and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. I came to my senses, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I've been doing a bit of self-discovery the past couple weeks with this thing called the Enneagram. You might be familiar. It's a sort of a personality test that helps um, us do the work of understanding kind of like how we're wired, how you're wired. Christian writers like A.J. Sherrill have done a really great work at integrating this tool into uh, the faith-based conversation, the discipleship conversation. I, I know some of you recently took a part in Jay Davies' Enneagram workshop, so this, this might be fresh for some of you. One of the challenging things about the Enneagram is that it doesn't just celebrate who you are. It, it actually shows you how you're likely to grow, and therefore it needs to kind of show you, well, your growing edges or your shortcomings. It shows you who you are in success and how that might be dangerous. It also shows you kind of where you go when you're under stress, which, which can be deadly. I came out as an Enneagram 3, for what it's worth. Um, this number is called the Achiever. Threes, they value good leadership and accomplishment. They like setting goals and they value charm and diplomacy. But sometimes they can too greatly value what others think of them. And in stress, they're likely to break down and isolate. Ouch. In learning about this philosophy, I I thought of the goal that I had set for myself years ago. I had set a goal early on, really after starting to attend New Hope, that I wanted to be a pastor. Not the pastor, but a pastor, specifically for New Hope. I had no designs on Jason's job. In fact, he was my primary source of help during those years as I sought to accomplish this goal. But everything I did, from leading a house church to leading worship to working with the edge, all of it was in hopes that I would gather the necessary experience to help shepherd this congregation. I dedicated my life to it even before there was a clear way to accomplish the goal. And when the opportunity did arise, it felt natural to step into it because of how I had positioned myself in the life of the congregation in the years leading up to it. 
Um, and you know how the story ends. I, I, I get the job. And once Jason actually did decide to go elsewhere, um, it might have seemed like, like that goal had reached its climax or it had, that goal had reached its arrival. Um, of course, that's, that's far from the truth. Stepping into the role of a pastor at New Hope taught me how much of the road was still in front of me and still in front of all of us. You see, if I had made this goal about my glory, then it could have compelled me to sit back once I accomplished it. But instead, I focused on soli deo gloria, that principle that all of that was done to God's glory, not my own. And if I surrender my successes as well as my failures to His glory, then I'm living in His story, not my own. The tragedy is, though, that you don't have to look far on Google before you run into stories of pastors who let power get to their head. The people, they start listening to you and they follow your lead. And before you know it, it's not God's kingdom that you're working for. It's your own. That's why even a church, a church like ours or a mega church or anybody, always needs to do the work of reminding itself, being reminded by God every now and then that everything we do, everything we do, should be done for the, to the glory of God. It might seem odd that, that when we do, that we need to do that, right? Uh, but nothing could be more important for us as a church to keep in check. The work we do, our worship services, our small groups, uh, the work we do out in the community, all of it must be to God's glory and not our own. And even in the misses, even in the failures, we still glorify God, even when the, the field goal goes wide. Why? Because nothing and no one else is worth it. I mean, you might ask yourself, why does God insist on getting the glory? Is his ego really that big? Let me tell you, giving God the glory is not about stroking his ego. God has nothing to prove to us. No, giving God the glory is about surrendering our narrow, selfish plans to the one who contextualizes all of his stories into the grand narrative. Actually, just before the sermon started, I'll give you a back um, a peek behind the curtain, just before the service started, Dan Halaski and I were talking about this, and he made the point that, you know, when we have something else, the reason why we give God the glory is because when we remove God from the center of the universe, we will put something else in its place that is not worthy. When we put something else at the center of the universe, like our job or our kids or our money, whatever it is you want to put there, when we put that idol at the center, we find that it's not worthy and it won't live up. It'll never be the, the thing. It'll never give life to us the way that God will. So everything we do, we're called to do it to God's glory. Churches, families, businesses, bedroom habits, financial habits, all of it can be done, should be done to God's glory. And to be honest, when it is done to God's glory, all those other things, they find their true purpose because it's done, they're done to God's kingdom for the purposes of God's kingdom, not ours. Nothing else is a cause worth fighting for, quite like the kingdom of God. 
I believe, the reason I became a pastor is because I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. Because, for the very reason, because I believe the church is how God intends to manifest Himself and manifest His love to this world. But that can only be the case if we are giving the glory to God. The problem is that, that sometimes the church faces seasons of division. When people see things differently and they start throwing up these walls and start throwing rhetoric at each other instead of having honest discussion to the glory of God. And one such situation came out uh, in the first century with the church in Corinth. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to them that came to be called 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter that is dedicated to the glory of God And Paul keeps hammering on this idea that in Christ, the church finds its identity. You see, this church had been allowing other things to define it. Selfish things, things that were were causing division rather than unity. A few weeks ago in our series on the Holy Spirit, we looked at chapters 12 and 13 in 1 Corinthians that, that discuss these things called spiritual gifts. Paul talks about how there are many ways that the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in the life of a community and in the life of a person. He begs the church to use their gifts to God's glory. The the problem was, instead of using the gifts to God's glory, they started to treat some gifts like they were better than others and give certain people better seats at the table and start giving glory to people instead of God. But Paul wants them to get back to this principle of sacrificial love. This principle that says that loving others, truly loving others to God's glory, is more important than your own power. Paul says to them, For just as the, one body, the, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, 13, Paul says, listen guys, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, for Paul, there was an intimate relationship between glorifying God and loving others. Which shouldn't come as a shock to us because Jesus said the exact same thing. Apparently, one of the big problems facing the early church in Corinth and other cities of the day um, was this debate over food that was sacrificed to idols. In the pagan world, of course, food was mixed with worship and offering. This was also true of the Hebrew world as well. So there was a debate about, should I be eating food that was prepared by what might be uh, defined as questionable means? It might have been easy to give over to kind of like legalism about the rules that, that lean more in towards like the letter of the law rather than the spirit. So Paul gives them a filter to kind of understand how they are to navigate this issue. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 23. He says, you know, guys, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the believers, uh, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for the sake of, of conscience. Now, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? That, that gets a little bit muddled there in the end, but Paul's saying, listen, you're free to eat anything because all things come from God. If you're thankful for it and your conscience is clear, eat the food. But if you're around someone that you know struggles to keep God, is, struggles with keeping God at the center, abstain from eating certain things in service to them. The, the point of all of this is to do the thing that builds up others. You know, if I'm having a meal with someone who I know struggles with alcohol, I'm going to order a Coke. Not because I'm sitting there in judgment, because I love them and I want to encourage them to keep going on the right path. On the other hand, if I'm having a meal with someone who has had a hard week and needs to kind of be real, needs to kind of talk honestly, or just have a laugh about some things, um, I'm going to order a beer in order to show that person that I'm interested in being real with them. I'm their friend. Am I free to get a beer in both situations? Sure I am. I don't have a problem with alcohol, and, and I'm an adult. I can order a beer whenever I want. But Paul is saying that, you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. How do you know the difference? It comes down to what would serve that other person. Now, at this point, you might be scratching your head and, and seeing, well, well, wait a minute, but you started talking about loving other people. I thought we were just, I thought we were talking about the soli dello gloria thing. I thought we were talking about glorifying God. And that is exactly where Paul wants you. I think that's exactly where Jesus wants you. The point was always that loving God, glorifying God, and loving others takes the same muscle, uses the same muscles. Look how Paul finishes this, uh, this, this, this section in, in verse 31. He says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of it to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And he says at the beginning of chapter 11, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The writer Owen uh, Strachan says, the Christ follower approaches every single moment of existence as an opportunity to magnify God. So if you're questioning then what Paul said about being a people pleaser, uh, I'd encourage you to spend more time with Paul. He said what needed to be said at precisely the moment that it needed to be said. But you can be sure that his 
goal was always to glorify God by serving those he was ministering to in the moment. When he wrote, when he wrote Galatians, he, serving others looked like writing a stern letter of rebuke. It looked like writing a howler. When he wrote Philippians, it looked like writing a love letter to a people he cared deeply about. When he wrote Romans, it looked like laying out this detailed explanation of the gospel to a church sitting at the heart of the Roman Empire. He said um, that he wanted to be all things to all people and draw as many people as possible to the light of the gospel in order that many might be saved. And to do that, he imitated Christ's sacrificial love. And that is exactly what he's asking us to do, to imitate Christ's sacrificial love by loving others the way that they need to be treated, the way that they want to be treated, all to God's glory. Because you can't do anything to God's glory without love. Right now, you might be wrestling with the decision, with, with any kind of decision of, of, of right and wrong, right? You're, you're trying to figure this out. The world is not always an easy place to figure things out. What is the right thing to do? Well, we'll try this filter. Ask yourself, how do my choices affect another's practice to give God's glory? Let me say that again. How do my choices affect another person's practice or willingness, faithfulness to give God the glory? Do my choices stand in the way of that or do they support that? You see, the danger here is, is to be all about people-pleasing and not at all about the glory of God. And when we do that, we don't help them and we don't help God. The point was never to make other people idols. No, from a position of glorifying God, we can say, how can I best serve other people? And when, from a position of serving other people, we ask, how can I best glorify God? I believe this principle can have a revolutionary effect on our marriages, our parenting, our work life, our school life. Wherever you find yourself, if we were to ask ourselves, and, and yes, of course, ask God, what is the best way that I can serve others to your glory? What is the best way that I can devote my life, to pour out my life to other people who need it to glorify God? See, when we do that, you make the sacrificial play. When you do the, the good deed, you're the friend that they, that other person needs in that moment. In, in that moment, they're going to ask you why you did it. Gosh, why do you love me so much? Why are you being so kind to me? Why did you think about my needs rather than your own? They're going to see that eventually. It might take them a while. It might take them just a few minutes. I don't know. They're going to see that, and eventually you're going to get the question. Why are you doing this for me? Why do you care so much about me? When that happens, you can tell them that you showed love to them because God first showed love to you, and you want to live your life to the glory of God in sacrificial love. The kind of love that is there for people, that is there for a friend. The kind of love that takes the call in the middle of the night. The kind of love that um, that, that, that meets the person on the road, the kind of person that, that the kind of moment that, 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 that can do the thing that is going to, to cost something, but also show the most love. 
Not because you're trying to earn points with God. You, you, you've already gotten God's grace. But because, because you've received God's grace, you want to pour that back out into others. That is a life lived to God's glory. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to our community. Uh, I thank you that, um, uh, for, the, for the people listening to my voice right now. Uh, that this whole series, I just pray, has been a time that, that they've wrestled through these, um, these foundations, uh, this concept that, that we surrender ourselves to the narrative of Scripture, that our stories find their true redemption in the grand narrative of Scripture, that, that your grace, that we are saved by grace through faith. We don't earn our salvation, but we live our salvation out by your grace. And Father, we do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, and we do it all to the glory of you, to your glory, to your kingdom, seeking first your kingdom and praying that you would establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.